Welcome to Tilting at Windmills with your host, Mike Donahue. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mike again, and I am really pleased this week to be joined by, and please forgive me if I'm, um, I know I'm going to mispronounce it, Dr. Alec Kanoja and Crudy Kanoja. How is that? Not scale bad. one to 10, six. <laughs> so uh, it, it's really simple, Mike. So when I tell people it's, it's not all maple, it's all oak. Okay. All oak and crudy. Um, anyway, sorry for the digression. Dr. Alec, getting closer. Dr. Alec specializes in uh, psychiatry. Right now you're at Harvard. That's correct. Yeah. And uh, your particular emphasis or discipline is revolving right now around video game addiction. Yeah. So video game and technology addiction. Okay. And then Crudy, you're right now you're an MBA or taking your MBA and you're more focused on the offerings or, or the recovery portion, treatment, real world treatment portion aspect of, of video game addiction. That's right. I'm trying to increase access and awareness for video game addiction and help people just know that there is a way forward and there is there are people to help you. Got it. Great. Okay. So that's out of the way. Just to break the ice on these sessions, I'd like to ask people, it is, it's really honestly a sort of a selfish question. I like to ask people, have you guys watched or read or listened to anything that's out there uh, in the public right now that that I should know about that you really enjoyed, really liked, or want to recommend to people listening? Yeah. So the most recent thing that I did that I would recommend to other people is I, I watched an esports tournament. Okay. Which you know I think if you guys haven't seen esports before or haven't gotten into it, it can be incredibly engaging and exciting. I grew up watching a lot of baseball originally, and then in college was really into college football. But I, I think esports is just a growing field that's just a lot of fun. Okay. And was it was it the Fortnite one or the Dota Two International? No, so, yeah, so I watched the Dota Two International. Awesome, awesome, and the prize pool I think for that was right around total was around forty million dollars. I think it was a little under. I, I thought it was okay. closer to thirty, but the prize 30. pool, you know, it, it changes so it grows with time. So I, I don't know exactly what it was, but yeah, it was astronomical. And then Crudy, how how about your how about for yourself? Hopefully, something completely away from technology. Completely, I'm <laughs> I'm kind of obsessed with the Outlander series right now, or I have been. Yeah, for, yeah, good old day, like 18th century Scotland. Right, the time she travels back in time to Scotland. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting. It's like the whole. Um, it was just such an interesting time in history with um, the revolutions and kind of the crumbling of the British Empire. It, I don't know. I just love everything about it. Yeah, there's some rough scenes in that show. The watching the whole sort of idea of what happens when someone from our modern day goes back and interacts with people is is pretty fun to watch. So yeah, super great. So that all said, Doctor, I think we should maybe start with your background a bit and maybe why this out of all the myriad psychological subjects that uh, are out there, why why did you turn to video games as your area of study? 
Well, so, I mean, I started playing video games when I was quite young and always enjoyed them. And when I went to college, I had a real problem with video games. Like I basically was getting C's, D's and F's in class. I was on academic probation after my first semester of college and was really on the on the brink of failing out after my sophomore year. I had like less than a 2.0 GPA and realized that like something needed to change and I needed to figure out what was going on. I spent basically all day playing video games and was barely going to class. And so started the process. I, I actually ended up going to a monastery in India and starting started to learn meditation and yoga and started to learn some tools to understand like who I am and how I work. So where do my desires come from? Why is it that I want to play video games? What is it that's satisfying about playing video games? And started the process of sort of understanding myself and conquering my addiction. And then as years went by, I got kind of curious about the neuroscience of it. So I had sort of studied it from kind of an experiential or spiritual way, like studying my own mind and different influences within myself. But I got curious about the science behind it. So after I finished college, ended up doing neuroscience research at Harvard and studying the brain and trying to figure out, okay, like how does the brain work? And then eventually went to medical school. And for a long time, I had sort of deviated kind of not really thought too much about video game addiction but when i started training to become a psychiatrist i started asking folks like my, my supervisors and mentors and things like that what they thought about video game addiction and basically no one knew anything mm. so I, I it hit me one day that the average psychiatrist is like 52 years old in this country mm. and that most of so technology the the change in technology has been so rapid i think the iPhone came out in like 2004 or five or something. And so in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been such an explosion of technology in the way that games have, have grown and expanded and become more engrossing. And medicine just really can't keep up. So medicine tends to work pretty slowly. Like, you know, you have to do clinical trials and, and do grants and sort of get things approved and all these sort of safeguards that it ultimately means that, you know, you're studying things that have been around for five, six, seven years and video game addiction is just exploding. Something like three to 8% of the population in the United States has video game addiction. If you talk about people under the age of 18, it's closer to 10%. And, and psychiatry just doesn't know what to do about it. Like there haven't really been studies on video game addiction that are pretty robust. It's nowhere near, for example, our understanding of cancer or cardiovascular disease or even and, drug or behavioral addictions absolutely so so then I, I started even within the field of psychiatry like we understand some things about gambling addiction and and things like that but really that that we really don't know too much about what video game addiction is how it works how is it different and so i started five years ago just exploring that so started talking to gamers just gamers across the internet so talking about people from Europe or, or East Asia or the Middle East. And I just started asking questions to people about like, why do you play video games? Does it cause you problems? And what kind of problems does it cause? And that's kind of how I got started. So if I can ask, sorry, I guess my first question, how, how do you define addiction in this context? And is there, you know, there's that alcoholic checklist, right? Are you an alcoholic? If you answer yes to one or more of these things, you're an alcoholic. So if you could define addiction in this context, and then is there something like that checklist out there? 
So there, there, so the first way I would define it is that if it causes a problem, it is a problem. So one of the things that's happening in our society is like the difference between a biological substance use addiction and these kind of bad behaviors. When someone says like, I'm a shopaholic, are they actually like an addict? Is that a disease or is that just like something that you do to cope? Indulge. And it's a really gray zone. Yeah. And so ultimately what I kind of settle down on is like if playing video games is causing a major problem in your life, and usually the dimensions that I look at are if it's causing a serious problem in your career, if it's causing a serious problem in your academic performance, if it's causing problems in your relationships or preventing you from like having the relationships that you want, like real life connections or finding a girlfriend or, you know, an important romantic relationship. If it's impacting your physical health or your mental health, or if it's interfering with some of your, you know, the goals that you set for yourself in terms of creative pursuits, then I think it's a problem. Okay. So do I personally get any points if I can check all of those? Yeah. I mean, so I, I think, I think you get the, you get the prize of being an addict, right? <laughs> we, and, okay. and then the other prize that you get is that there's probably a lot of low hanging fruit. Right. So if, if you're failing in each of those dimensions, the crazy thing is the, the worse people are. My experience has been that in, in a lot of ways, it's the easier they are to help. So just as an example, yeah. you know, if someone is playing video games for 12 to 16 hours a day, mm -hmm. they're going to have problems in each of those dimensions. So the cool thing is if I can just get them to stop playing video games from like nine to one every day and they use that time productively, their life starts getting so much of a change in momentum. Like in four hours a day, like if you exercise for an hour, eat healthy for an hour, update your resume and call your family, your life is going to be like night and day compared to not doing those four the basic idea things. Of momentum especially interesting right. because, you know, it can kind of go both ways, right? Where like you kind of go into this downward spiral where you know, your isolation socially is then affecting your real world outcomes, which is then affecting kind of like your mental health state. It can kind of keep spiraling down. But if what Alok is talking about is creating kind of the reverse of that momentum, that's where I think, Alok, I mean, you can talk to this more, but I think that's where you see kind of the biggest swings. Yeah. Right. So, so again, I'm just trying to, because normally when I hear the word addiction, the, the immediate thought is, okay, heroin or crack or, or whatever. And there's, so my understanding, you know, there's a physiological response when there's an addiction there, whether it's, uh, you're going to have to forgive me, the endorphins firing off or whatever the pleasure mm -hmm. center of the brain starts ticking. And then I think in direct contradiction to you, what you were saying about the video game, and maybe more to Crudy's point about the vicious circle, when you're, the more heavily addicted you are to heroin, the harder it is to come out of it. So I think I think it's interesting to try and identify the differences be between because I think most people out there have an embedded sort of understanding or, or an embedded perception of what it means to be addicted to something. And now you're saying that's not necessarily the case for video games. It's a different. There are very there are important distinctions. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, I, I think your, your instinct is correct in terms of, I think when most people think of an addiction, they think of something that we now call a substance use disorder. So this is a biological compound that enters your body, travels to your brain, and affects very specific circuits in your brain. 
it doesn't really have over time addictions can start to affect other parts of your brain like let's say you're addicted to alcohol and as a result you sort of go through a divorce or you know you get fired from your job then that's going to affect other parts of your brain like the consequences that kind of come from alcohol but the alcohol itself is like a a molecule that goes up to a certain receptor in your brain and just activates it video game addiction is a behavioral addiction so these behavioral addictions their effects on the brain are more widespread and are also more nuanced. Like, for example, part of the reason that some people sort of get enraptured in video games is because unlike 20 years ago, video games were just recreation, but now they're a job, right? So like, mm. for example, these people that won this $33 million tournament, they're like, the I think the youngest uh, member of that team who gets, I think, a fifth of the prize pool is like 18. And so, you know, you have when I work with kids, I work with 15, 16 year old kids that want to go pro. And so for them playing a video game, like, sure, they're they're failing, like they're not doing well in classes, but there's a part of them that sort of gets wrapped up in the identity of being like a professional gamer. And I've never heard of a professional heroin addict before. Right. But theoretically, that's also consistent with athletes in high school who completely ignore their courses because they think they're going to have a professional career in whatever sport they're in. Absolutely. So I, I think that that you're spot on in terms of like video game addiction is like different, right? So okay. this is a new phenomenon that human beings haven't faced. And I'd say that the difference between the athlete and the video game addict is while both of them are hoping to go pro, I don't think football was designed by a group of programmers, psychologists, and behavioral economists to get uh, you to play football for like 12 hours a day. Right. So, so Crudy, yeah, I'd like to get to that a bit more later about how the dollars have impacted the ability for the developers to sort of steroid the addictive nature of the games. But I guess on the, on the addiction component, maybe for Crudy, if, if I'm a parent, I'm a parent and I have a 14-year-old teenager who does nothing but play video games all day and doesn't really talk to me much. How do I differentiate between that's just sort of normal teenage behavior versus I think there's a serious problem here. Because this idea of normalcy, I think, is hurting a lot of parents. And it hurts a lot of the kids, too, that are playing so much because they kind of there's this kind of part of an addiction criteria where it's not even fun anymore. They just kind of keep playing it. And this idea of like, well, it's normal kind of Mm. hurts people from like recognizing that part of the addiction criteria. And I think for the parent, the most important thing you can do is just understand what's going on with your kid. And we look at five dimensions, right? We look at social isolation. We look at real world outcomes, grades, extracurriculars. We look at mental health. We look at emotional health and social health. So if you're noticing any one of those five becoming dramatically exacerbated by video games, then yes, I would say look into it. And if it's not necessarily the addiction label is often unhelpful for parents. So I wouldn't I wouldn't look at it that way. But is it getting in the way of your kid's future? Is it holding your child back? If so, then I think it's time to kind of take some action into at least understanding what's going on with your child. Kat, when, when you talk about those different mm-hmm. issues, like the social isolation, et cetera, you know, and understanding the 
an abnormal interest in video games could be the cause of of some of those. Isn't the reverse also true that an increase in video game usage is is the result of those other like the inability to communicate or the inability to socialize, et cetera? It's such a it's such a good point. Gaming can be amazing. Gaming provides so many great things for kids, especially like, I mean, Alok does a great job of talking about this in these courses. But if you have to, if you're just a parent, think about three things that games do for your kids. One is it gives them a sense of identity. And it, it says like, I'm a gamer. And with that comes this identity and respect and like a place in the world. It gives them a sense of accomplishment, which, you know, when you're 14, 15 years old, you can't really drive yet. You can't really do a lot. When you're kind of constantly leveling up or winning tournaments or things like like you're getting these kinds of like rewards in these games, that sense of accomplishment can go a long way for things like low self-confidence, um, social isolation, being bullied. Maybe you're not like the fastest or strongest kid and like, you know, you're not going to be on, you know, varsity sports. So like having this accomplishment recognized in the virtual world can be so rewarding. And a sense of community is the third one. So, you know, games do provide a lot of benefits to your point about, well, if that's missing in the real world, where do you find it? And you can find it through games. But I think parents, because generally, generationally, there was such a hard line between pre and post internet parenting and the percentage of like, especially the, for the teen, even the teenagers coming up now, let alone those that came up as teenagers, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the, the thought that that is so heavily burned into our culture that socializing means getting outside and going and sitting in front of someone and talking to them. And is that not the case anymore? Do you still, do you still value that? over, say, belonging to a World of Warcraft guild? Or is there essentially, can there be equivalent value in both of those? And am I even right about that? I don't know if there's equivalent value, but I do think that there's real value in online relationships. Just as an example, I invited a guy that I had been playing video games with for, let's see, 12 or 13 years to my wedding. And I had never met him before. so. The funny thing about like relationships online is you kind of take them with you, right? Like, so if if we think about, I had friends in high school and when I went off to college, like we kind of drifted apart. I had friends in college and when I went off to med school, we kind of drifted apart. And then when I enter residency after med school or enter a professional, like let's say I find a job, then you're going to sort of drift apart from your college friends or you're going to move to a different city. But your online friends come with you at, at each step of the way. And so I do think that the relationships you form over the internet can be positive and impactful. But I also think that the relationships that you form over over the internet are not going to be the the same quality as what you find in the real world. For example, like, you know, if you're having a hard day, sometimes what you really need is like a hug and no one on the internet can do that for you. So human beings release a hormone called oxytocin which provides comfort anytime that they get like hugged. It, oxytocin is a critical hormone for sort of forming bonding in relationships. So it's, it's the way that like parent infant bonding happens. 
And so our brain has a need for real life interaction and has a psychological need that I think can be authentically fulfilled over the internet. So in my opinion, are they, are they the same? No, but there are some things that an online relationship can really sort of kind of fulfill in, in a sort of real and surprisingly authentic way. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I would, I would, sorry, Kriti, go ahead. I was just going to say, one of the things that games do better than the real world is provide a judgment-free zone. And during that really vulnerable adolescent period, I mean, that's, that's what so many youth are rightfully seeking. So a lot of those relationships can therefore be more authentic because you're not trying to prove anything other than, you know, this mutual love for a game. Right. So I guess from my own experience, you know, my first two years of high school, I was just the completely nerdiest nerd you could ever think of. But when I played Ultima, you know, I was Lord British or whatever. So and I can imagine now, like, it doesn't matter if you have acne or, you know, you got a bad haircut or, you know, you're not popular at school. There are communities that that just don't not only don't care, but just have no idea of of your role in in those universes all they care about is is what you're contributing in in the in the gaming community yeah absolutely right so in high school adolescents and high schoolers tend to be very judgmental so you're mm. going to be judged and maybe even bullied based on whether you have acne or not how tall you are how much you weigh what your gender is what your ethnicity is how much money your parents make, what kind of car you drive, what kind of car they drive, what kind of clothes you wear. And that all vanishes. And, that all slides right off when you log in. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. we think about, you know, moving towards a, a society that's equal and colorblind and treats all people the same. That's what a video game is. Because when you're playing Ultima or when you're playing Fortnite, no one cares what your gender is. No one cares what you look like. No one cares how old you are. It's, it's really like a colorblind kind of zone. And you can sort of well, invent yourself. Yeah, but between you and I, we all know that that sexy female elf in Warcraft is really, you know, a 48-year-old male. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> right. So if you're a 48-year-old man you can, who's obese and overweight, you can be a sexy elf on the internet. Like, right. why do you think it's so addicting, man? Because you can right. do what you want. So, so we've been, and, and as we've been having this discussion, just my visualization of my head about the, the person that we're talking about who's addicted, besides maybe we've been talking about me, but is a teenage male. And, and maybe that is a disproportionate amount of, of the demographic from who are part of the addicted base. But it's absolutely not confined to the teenage male, is it? Not at all. So I, I think if we look at so the number one kind of population range that I help uh, is predominantly men between the ages of like 20 and 28 is the most common person. And I think the reason for that is that like once you get like at the beginning of college, like your freshman year, you're kind of figuring things out. But people who seek help are the ones who start to realize like when you're 21 and you're a junior in college, like sure, you kind of do an OK in class and stuff, but you haven't been doing internships. You know, you haven't been doing research because all of your free time is spent gaming. And so when people sort of hit their 20s, people begin to realize that, oh, this is actually becoming a problem. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing is that it's a pro- like the teenage male is like absolutely a problem too, but and maybe Kruthi can speak a little bit more to this, but the difference is that usually teenagers don't really understand that they have a problem. Whereas you take a 24-year-old guy who's living in his mom's basement, like he recognizes that something is not going right in his life, whereas teenagers don't. Right. But that's probably just the self-awareness that comes with age and maturity, right? Sure. Or, but I, I think both of them have problems with video games. Right. And what, but where, where are the females in this? Great question. So the, the answer is they're coming and they're catching up to the males very quickly. So if you look at video game addiction, let's say like between the ages of 20 and 30, men are probably addicted somewhere between 5 to 7% and women are addicted somewhere around 3%. So we're talking like half as much addiction or less. Now, if you go under the age of 18, about 9.4% of boys under the age of 18 are addicted to video games and 7.8% of girls are addicted to video games. So Hmm. as people, as we go younger, and I think that has something to do with how games have developed, you know, the, the discrepancy between men and women who are addicted to video games is quickly shrinking. Right. Well, that's, I guess that's disturbing in its own right. So I'm going to put forth my theory and, and I'll let you guys completely poke holes in it and, and shoot it down. But I've for, for this has been sort of a, uh, an internal dialogue or, or thoughts I've been having about because I am a pretty avid gamer and, and I've seen some of this uh, in the communities that I belong to. But I have this sort of there's no catchy term for it, but there's sort of these four interacting components, I think that impact or have specific impact to adult males, which again, I think is your your highest percentage. And I'm not sure exactly how these are all interwoven, but I think the four of them together create a pretty potent cocktail of, of addiction. And, and they are, so the adult male sort of competitive nature, just are, whether that's cultural or gender-based or whatever it is, that thing of, I wanna win, I need to win, I'm better if I win, I, it's just our, our ingrained, I don't have other outlets to compete. I'm not going to go on the basketball court. I want to compete uh, and I want to win. And I think when you combo that with some of the games that offer pay to win opportunities, so not talking about really cause, so for the listeners out there in, in video game land, you sort of have a lot of the games that are out there now are free. You can just, your, your child or whomever can just start playing them for free and where the companies make their money from are, are in one of two buckets. And please correct me, either of you, if, if I'm wrong on this, but either people are paying money to change the cosmetic look of their character, but there's no real in-game impact other than the cosmetics. And then the other bucket is actually sort of pay to win, where if I pay $5, I'll get a better football player or I'll, I'll get a better gun or, or whatever I get. And I think when you combine the competitive nature with a pay to win game, that starts triggering, you know, sort of an escalation or sort of eases the path, right, to encouraging the addiction. And then I think the other two components, you know, there's a gambling component. So in almost all of these games, whether they're cosmetic based or pay to win is is that when you do pay money to these people, a lot of the time you don't get a specific object. You'll get a box. And when you open that box, you get X, right? And your odds of, 
you know, getting X, if X is great, is this or that. So there's there's very much a gambling component to a lot of these games. And then I think the fourth, which which gambling has its own inherent sort of draws. And then I think the last component is just escapism. And maybe this is where I relate a little bit. I'm I'm a pretty stressed out guy and I don't drink. But when I get really stressed out and I just want to check out for a bit and escape, I'll fire up, you know, Rocket League or Dota or whatever. And when I'm in that game, I'm not thinking about the world. I'm not thinking about the stress or my job or, or whatever. And I think those four things in my head are particularly onerous to adult males who have the resources to drop large amounts of money on games. And I, and just my own, I know I'm going on here forever, but my own personal example, I was in a Madden, mobile Madden league last year that finished like number six globally. And we had about 30 members. And as a member, I would estimate that we spent between six and $8,000 or maybe probably more than that, six and $10,000 bolstering our rosters so that we could, we could be better at the game. We could have stronger players. And that's not, that's not an, and I'm sure there's people out there that spend a lot more, but that's not an insignificant amount of money. And ultimately at the end of the year, right, everything, it's all virtual, it's all intangible. And at the end of the year, it all disappears, right? Everything's reset. So I don't, I don't know if, if I'm on the right track, if I'm not on the right track, or if there's any sort of, it just feels like those four components. The, the competitiveness, the ability to pay to win, the gambling component, and then the escapism component all conspire, if, if that's the word, to, to get people in. That was a long, sorry, if you, if you all need a moment. No, I, 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 I thought that was, that, that, that was great, Mike. I, I think, um, so I think you're right. So the, fun, the interesting thing is that there are actually studies that have been done on functional neuroscience. So we're talking about like studies that look at activity of the brain. And there are also studies, psychological studies that have been done that basically show that the four things that you talked about, a sense of escapism, a sense of competitiveness, which I would reframe a little bit in a second, but mm -hmm. a sense of a pay to win mechanic in a sense of gambling, that each of those maps on to like a particular part of your brain or psychology. And they're mm. all four at play. Absolutely. And it's the biggest drop, right? All of those, I would say or three of those fall into that accomplishment bucket. So if you're if you're gaming for identity or accomplishment or community, those are all kind of different drives, right? And to all its point, yes, they they will map to different parts of your brain and there there are specific tactics that game designers can use to kind of prey on that. But essentially they're all tying back to the reason for why you're playing in the first place. So, so let's speak to that for a bit, if we can. The the I want to say Riot Games. I'm not sure if it was. I think it was two years ago. But Riot Games makes League of Legends, which is a free to play game. The only purchases really in game you can make are cosmetic. And yet, I think their revenues two years ago, and they're probably higher now, were a little over 1.6 billion from people buying cosmetic items. And I'm sure Fortnite. I'm loath to look. I'm sure I could Google it. But what Epic is making off of the Fortnite cosmetics has got to be far more than than that even. Yeah. So Fortnite, Fortnite in 2018, I think they made $3 billion of profit. Yeah. Just crazy. 
right? To you, like to, to normal people out there, $3 billion off of a free game, right? A, a technically, a fr- what, what is free to, to download yeah. and play. So what is that money, that massive amount of money enabling them to do? We all hear stories about how potato chips are specifically designed, right? To hurt, hit certain taste buds, hit certain notes so that you, you don't want to eat just one. You want to keep eating the potato chips. What are these massive amounts of dollars enabling them to do in terms of R&D for engagement? Well, so Mike, I want to just pause for a second because I think this happens quite a bit where people conflate sort of monetary schemes with the addictiveness of the game. So in my experience, a company extracting money from you isn't necessarily the same as making a game more addictive. So, for example, you know, people will play like people who are addicted to Fortnite may not ever spend money on it. In fact, most of the so generally speaking, in my work with gamers, the people who spend more money are less likely to be addictive. And I'll give you an example. So I have a friend who's a radiologist. So he's a friend of mine from medical school. And he's like he's married. He has a job. He makes plenty of money. And instead of buying like fancy shoes or a fancy car, he's a gamer. So he spends thousands of dollars on video games because that's his recreation, right? So like the gaming generation doesn't care about owning like a Louis Vuitton bag. We just don't care about it. So I think it's important to recognize that just because a game is being monetized and that can involve predatory psychology, right? So you you can monetize a game in a way that incentivizes people to spend money. But the reason that a game becomes addictive is a little bit different, right? So the competitive drive, and I think you did a good job of sort of linking some of those in, like the competitive drive and the sense of accomplishment and being number two or number one in your league is what makes a game addictive. But that really doesn't have a, that's not necessarily tied to making money. So so I'm a couple of ticks short of full-on communists. So I see inherent evil in all these corporations, I guess. And that's a bit of a joke, but <laughs> some would say not really. So I, it's hard for me to imagine that there isn't... Because if I'm the developer, I want as many people playing this game as possible, as much as possible. And... So- so just yeah. let me pause let me pause okay. there for a second Mike. So just think about that. So so do you want to have 35-year-old people unemployed living in their mom's basement playing your game or do you want to have physicians playing your game? I think I want what Coke and Pepsi want. I just want the most eyeballs. Whatever gets me the most eyeballs and then whatever gets me into the most wallets. Sure. So, so, but at some point you have to sort of, there's an opportunity to cost. So you can say that you want everyone, but if I had to give you a choice of a customer, do you want a physician or do you want someone who's unemployed and living in their mom's basement? It depends on what my profit model is relying on. If it's, if it's relying on in-game advertising where, where I don't need a income from the consumer per se, if I'm just doing data gathering or or in-game advertising, then I'll take absolutely I'll take the high play, low spend basement dweller. But if I want additional revenue from my customers, then then I want the occasional playing high spending doctor. Does that exactly. make I know that's a cop out yeah. answer, but 
Yeah. No, no, it's not a cop out answer. So then let's let's look at actually the like statistics from the industry. So you know that like more games are going freemium, right? Right. And so yeah. what's happening and the reason they're going freemium is because most of the profit from freemium games. So like I think something like 90 percent of the revenue from do you know what Hearthstone is? I do. Yeah. Yeah. So Hearthstone is a collectible card game where you buy virtual card packs. And right. you can spend time in the game to earn card packs, which is what the 35-year-old person in the basement does. Or you can just spend money to buy them so that you don't have to play the game for hours and hours and hours to earn them. Right. So, that's what I would have called a pay to win. That's that's what yeah. I would have. Yeah. Great. So so here's the thing. 2% of the game's population provides 90% of the revenue. If you look at right. freemium model games. 90 cents on their dollar is coming from 2% of the players. And are right. you saying that percent is the addicted percent or are you saying that it doesn't matter? No, I, in some, so what I'm saying is that the revenue model is independent of who's addicted and who isn't, right? So, and I think this is an important point to understand is that like game designers, if you really think about it, so I'll, I'll give you another example, Mike. So there's a game called Star Citizen, which has not been released yet. And right. Star Citizen had it's like a it's like a spaceship space simulation kind of game. So they were selling limited edition spaceships that were selling for like 30 to 80 dollars that two years later are selling for fifteen thousand dollars. Right. This is a spaceship, a virtual spaceship in a video game. So if right. you think about who's spending that money, like someone with money has to spend that. Right. And I, I know that. So I, I do think that video games are creating predatory practices to get into your wallet. But in my experience, the 16 year old kid who is playing a video game for 12 hours a day, while pay to win mechanics have something to do with it. The reason that Fortnite is so so Fortnite is crushing all other video games in terms of like player base number of people playing money that they generate and Fortnite is not a pay to win game it's in fact it's the exact opposite right. the right. reason it's so addictive is because in order to be the best out of a hundred players you really have to be the, the best and so right. when you when you go into an arena and you dominate another 99 human beings who are trying their best to dominate you you feel like you just got elected to be like president of the United States. It's right. that competitive but, aspect. But they still spent, even though there's absolutely no impact on the game itself, people still spent over $3 billion yeah. on that game. So I'm struggling though. I, I do struggle because I don't think, I guess there's part of me that says, unless that doctor is addicted or your friend, Unless unless they're addicted, they wouldn't be spending that money or they wouldn't be spending it in the amounts that they're spending it in. I mean, I had it more like a fine dining analogy. You know what I mean? Where it's like some people are just never going to spend a thousand dollars on a steak, but some people will. You know, it, I think it's just where you place the value of your money. And to Alex's point about that two percent, like they're the ones that have the money to do so. So I don't I would agree that the. The money you spend on a game is not necessarily correlated with like your addiction to a game. I think it really is. Well, I, you have to spend on it. 
I can understand like it makes it like obviously if your spending pattern is is impacting your life, right? If you miss the rent or miss electricity because you bought whatever, then then there's absolutely a problem. But I guess in my head, maybe maybe video games, even in my head, don't have a value base like even like a, a Louis Vuitton luggage set. Right. I understand that it's a recreational expense, but I guess there's still some component. It, it seems bizarre to me that the developers wouldn't be doing everything they can to enhance my spend in game. Oh, they're absolutely doing everything they can to enhance your spend in game. But let's just talk about you for a second, Mike. You said that oh, your God. little, like your group on Madden, you guys spent six to $8,000 right? At, at least as a baseline. As a baseline. So yeah. I'm not disputing that that seems to be an unhealthy level of spending. But the question is, are you addicted to video games? Would you say yes or no? Um, yeah, I, that's why I want your checklist. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, I think I think I, there is a there is an addictive. Yes, I would probably fall into the Venn diagram. Oh, you know, the, the bucket of addicted gaming yeah so so do you even though i don't play a lot you, you do play a lot or you don't play a no, lot i do not play a lot yeah so i think that there's it's a weird and subtle point like you can get and maybe we're getting bogged down in it so i'm not disputing that there's sort of predatory psychology at place in terms of video game developers trying to get into your wallet and incentivize you to spend i'm also not saying that some of the ways that they do that overlap with video game addiction. But when I'm talking about someone who's failing out of college, like if we think about 10% of kids under the age of 18 are addicted to video games. Video game developers right. are, are not, I mean, they're making a lot of money off of them, but it's not. So just to give you an example, I was talking to a second grade teacher who said that 100% of the boys in her class play Fortnite. So the, so as you mentioned earlier, the video game developer wants 100% of people playing Fortnite like some of the time and spending some money on cosmetics. They institute cosmetics for the same reason, like the, to create a sense of status, right? So that's like a predatory psychology kind of thing where you're creating a game where someone has a virtual identity and you're separating the haves from the have-nots, which is just right. how like commercial branding works, right? There's like fancy cars and then there are like budget cars. And right. the people who create fancy cars, the reason that people buy them is because they look different. And that's just sort of a basic human aspect. But whether okay. someone plays, you know, someone's interest in a fancy car may have to do with addiction. But in my experience, the kid who plays Fortnite for 12 hours a day is doing so because he's escaping. Right. He's he's playing game. It has it has nothing to do with the cosmetic. I mean, it can have something to do with the cosmetics in the game. But this is like a 15 year old kid who's got acne, gets bullied at school. You know, his parents are going through a divorce and he gets home and he has this one solace, which is that he can enter this virtual world. And as long as he's in the virtual world, he can forget that his parents are going through a divorce. He can forget that, like he he's, he's not popular at school. He can forget all of those things. And that doesn't necessarily correlate with his wallet. Does that make sense? It does. So you're saying you're saying is like on a baseline observation, someone who's spending a significant amount of time may be 
is probably higher on the danger scale than someone who's spending a lot of money. That, yes. That there's more of a correlation to the danger when the, it's time spent versus money spent. Yeah. And, and so if you okay. think about it as a game designer, the game wants everyone, like you said, they want the max number of eyes, which is why they make both models, right? You can grind for packs and Hearthstone, or if you have a full-time job, you can still play just as well as the grinder by just spending money. So can you talk a little bit about, so so from a dev, again, trying to view it from a dev perspective, they want, I'm assuming that they want an initial hook. So someone downloads Fortnite, they play for 15, 20 minutes. You want to get them addicted to the game as quickly as possible on the initial launch. And then from there, it's about keeping them in game. Can you maybe talk to some of the specific tricks that the developers use to accomplish that? Yeah. So I think the first thing is that games don't end anymore, right? Like, so if you mm. want to talk about, I don't even know if this is a trick, but it's a fundamental discovery that the video game industry has moved towards, which is that like things just don't end. Like it, when I was growing up, you buy a, you buy a game, right? You take a cartridge, you plug it into your, your console, and then you turn it on, you start playing the game and then you finish the game. The game is over. So the biggest thing that that video game developers have discovered is that they don't want their game to ever end. Mm. So we were talking about this game, Dota 2, which this was the ninth year of uh, an international, a huge tournament with a million dollar plus prize pool. But people have been playing Dota for close to two decades. And right. so what game developers are really doing is they just continually release new content to keep people engaged. Right. Okay. Like it just never ends. Like you can never, you know, there's that part of you that wants to like succeed and compete and win. And so you beat a boss and then eventually you beat another boss and then you beat the final boss and then you win the game. But like you can't win the game anymore. And what about other, are there other in-game things that they do specifically? Let's just pick Fortnite as an example. Are there other specific psychological tricks that they use to, to keep the player engaged or to keep them one more game, like Civilization, right? What's the old meme about Civilization? One more turn, one more turn, uh, yeah. and it's summer. Are, are they actively working to increase that stickiness? I don't know if uh, that's the right word. Yeah, so I think some of them are. So I, I think that, you know, one of the things that we've got to do is remember that not all game developers are the same. So I think that some game developers really just like they, they're passionate about video games and they want to just make the best like video game they can. They want to make the game that they want to play that doesn't exist right now. And I do think that there are video game companies that on the other side hire psychologists and behavioral economists to figure out how can I create a monetization model that's going to squeeze the most money out of our player base. But I don't know that the person who's necessarily designing the game is the same is the someone who's coming up with like the pricing model or the freemium model. Right. There is back that I think in the gamer community, is there not all where like gamers are kind of catching on to that pretty quick and kind of reject it? Absolutely. Right. So, so wow. the gamer community has started to like backlash against pre-orders from some developers because they recognize that. There's like some guy sitting behind a desk somewhere that's trying to make profit off of me. And there are some development studios that are sort of revered by game developers because 
the experience I mean, by gamers, because the experience from gamers, is that these developers are interested in actually creating a good product. It's interesting. We talk about gamers sometimes as being like this very vulnerable, kind of easily persuadable population. But in reality, a lot of, I mean, gamers have been shown to be higher IQ points than the average population. They're quite capable. So when I think a lot of the mistakes that businesses, parents, other generations kind of make of gamers is underestimating them and underestimating their autonomy and the kind of decisions that they make for themselves. It's kind of too easy to blame the system. Go into that again, because I think like from a, if I was Epic, to me, that's just another market segment that needs to be cracked, right? I just have to adjust my behavior to, to maximize revenue from that source. But are you saying they're too volatile to be pinned down like that? I'm saying it's too easy to blame the industry where essentially what people pay for is fun, right? And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't want to demonize the industry as much as I want to say that what the real problem is, is that kids, this kind of 14 to 20 year old segment doesn't have enough real world engagement to fulfill the drives that video games fulfill. There's not enough opportunities for a skinny 15-year-old kid who's never going to play basketball to shine at high school. That is the kind of solution. Video games are filling that void, right? So before we kind of demonize the industry, I would challenge you and maybe even parents to think about like, well, what is it that we can do to actually hit some of these things that video games have done a masterful job at hitting? Right. Which are some of those things that you spoke to at the beginning, right? Regarding a sense of community and sort of leaving your physical self behind, creating your new persona, et cetera. So Mike, I think, you know, if we go back to your four points, So I think two of them create addicts and two of them make money. And is there a connection? Absolutely. But let me just specify. So the competitive drive is what makes an addict. Because when you're a no one in the real world and you're a someone in the virtual world, you're not going to want to spend time in the real world. You're going to want to spend time in the virtual world. Mm. And the second thing is the escape, right? So those two things are related because the real world Like you're not designed to succeed in the real world. And this is an example of what I think is like games are addictive for sure. And the reason they're addictive is because when you face a challenge in the real world, you're not the the world just isn't designed for you to win at the end. Whereas a video game is designed for you to be challenged, but ultimately successful. That's the way the game is made. And there's been research that shows that what makes video games addictive, and this is something that's fundamentally different from drugs. And I think like people think that video game addiction is similar to like real addiction. I mean, sorry, like substance use disorders. But I think there's one huge fundamental difference. When I use heroin, I'm guaranteed a reward. Mm. What makes video games addictive is the denial of reward. It's the fact that when I load up a game of Fortnite, I don't know if I'm going to win or lose. And so there's been some fascinating research that shows that the denial of reward and the challenge of a video game is actually what makes it addictive. Now, escapism and competition are a little bit different from loot boxes and pay to win mechanics. 
there's definitely right. overlap because if we're talking about competition and pay to win, like those are going to be related. And so I think in that way, you know, the industry has kind of conflated the two and sort of tries to design a system where they like make you addicted and sort of get your money. But in my experience, it's just this core thing that like the video game challenges you. And there's a part of our brain, like if we think about what makes a video game fun, it can't be too easy. If it's right. too easy, it's not fun. Right. And the, the games that are the most satisfying, if we look at a game like Dark Souls or Fortnite, like why is Dark Souls so satisfying? It's because it's punishingly Hard. difficult. Right. And when you when you fail and fail and fail and you succeed, like those are the values that we instill in, in people in our society. Right. Perseverance, success at the end of the day, like that's the American dream. It's not born with a platinum spoon in your mouth and like get two platinum spoons. It's like struggle and strive and be persecuted. If you, I mean, you can see it in our movies where there's like, you know, there's the person who's like bullied and then like ends up winning at the end. It's the overcoming of difficulty, which makes video games so much fun, so engaging and so addictive. So there, this is just like, and this whole subject, I think, is just dripping with nuance, right? There's all these components and facets to this discussion. And like, it's difficult. Like, even for me, I have to hear some of these thoughts two or three times to fully grasp them like we did. And I cannot imagine how difficult it must be for a parent out there who is, who is just anxious about this. They hear all they hear about is Fortnite nonstop. So if, if I'm a parent out there, and I think this is a chance for you guys to talk about yourselves a little bit more. If I'm a parent out there, what, who do I look to? Where do I go? What should I do? I think the first thing you do, you've been asking for criteria, Mike. On our website, healthygamer.gg, there is a quick test you can take to see if, you know, where on the spectrum are you, like, for a video game addiction. So... We say if you're hitting more than five of these criteria for a prolonged period of time, you're actually meeting the World Health Organization's criteria for gaming disorder. And we personally take a few issues with this definition, but if you're looking for like an objective, scientific, clinical definition of gaming disorder, you can see kind of where you measure up on our website. More than anything, I think whether your kid is 14 years old and they've suddenly started playing games and kind of turning into a different person. Maybe they're a little moodier than usual. Maybe they're kind of isolating themselves more than they should be. You know, you know your kid, you know when something is kind of going on. So I think the first thing you have to do is just understand what is going on and put your relationship as a priority that you don't want to become the enemy of the kid. And when your kid says, I would, I pick video games over you, mom. That is not a position you want to be in. So the first thing you want to do is just understand on the website, healthygamer.gg, there's, we have resources. There's a kind of a free primer for parents who are just trying to get their grip on what's going on in this world. Because I can imagine it's really overwhelming when all of a sudden your kid is not even playing the game anymore. They're watching somebody else play a game. And like, suddenly that's like the recreation. I, I can see why parents are at such a loss for resources and kind of like a window into that world. And then if you really need it, you know, we have resources for you. And I, I really don't want parents to feel alone 
We facilitate office hours for parents um, where you can kind of ask Dr. Kanogia specifics around what's going on with your child. We facilitate support groups so you can see kind of what's going to work with other parents. But, you know, 10% by some measures of kids 8 to 18 are going through this. So I don't want parents to feel like they've done anything wrong necessarily. It's the world we live in and there's a lot of factors there. So it's really important to just understand what's going on and figure out how you as a parent can repair your relationship to the point where when you set healthy boundaries, they're respected in your house. Right. And I think, so I think the, one of the reasons that I think it's really good for that you announced that that resource is available is I think to the doctor's very early point, you know, even if you have a family therapist or your child's currently going to a therapist, the odds that that person is trained or knowledgeable specifically in video game addiction is extremely remote, right? So this could be a complimentary service, you know, or or an additional or just a full full set, right? The, The odds that your therapist understands how to deal with this is, is not high. Right. And honestly, like by the time you even get an appointment with that therapist, you've probably lost the semester. And at that age, you know, like 14, 15, every report card matters. So what we like to do is help kind of parents get a jump start on everything. They have all the tools at their disposal. They can go as quickly as they want, and then they can kind of take control of the kind of resolution. They can help guide the therapist towards what specifically are you trying to get your kid to do? Are you trying to get them to do their homework? Or do you just not like the way that they're talking to you right now? Is it that their bedtime is slipping? Like, what is it about the games that is really kind of driving you nuts? Because parents have, they know something is off, but a lot of times they have trouble pinpointing exactly what it is that they want to see different. Got it. And that that website again is healthygamer.gg. Correct. All right, cool. Um, I think I think we actually ran over a bit on time. I apologize. Are there any sort of final thoughts or or things that you want to wrap this up with uh, as a message um, to people who may be listening, who may either feel personally impacted or have a loved one that they think might be impacted, or any final thoughts? Well, Mike, I, I just want to kind of just touch base for a second about like, so I think you pointed out uh, rightly so that my experience has been that it's a very nuanced issue. So video game addiction is nuanced. And there's even some evidence, actually a fair amount of evidence that it's not one disease. The reason that one person gets addicted is different from the reason that another person gets addicted. And while parents on a whole are dealing with video games in the household, the individual problems that they can have with their child will vary from parent to parent. So some kids will become super moody and irritable. Some kids will become super socially isolated. For other kids, it's what they do with their friends. Other kids, it's problems around sleep. And so our approach is is to really try to capture and address all of that nuance, to understand that video game addiction is going to be unique to every household and every parent is going to be different. And so to try to help parents understand like what's going on in your kid's brain, like what, you know, why are they getting addicted to video games? Because once you understand like it, why your particular child, like what are the psychological drives that the video game is satisfying in their brain? And once you understand that, you can work very specifically at targeting them. So it's not really a one size fits all solution, which is sort of what our our full curriculum goes through is like all these different options. 
And then furthermore, like Ruthie mentions, so the point of office hours and stuff is because we're still learning about this too. So if yeah. you're a parent and you're going through stuff, like, you know, don't go through it alone. And I run online groups that, you know, gamers come to and we kind of talk through problems together. And we do that with parents too. And a lot of what parents learn is from just like hearing other parents like work through stuff and then kind of like working together. So our real goal is to build a community that sort of empowers parents to understand like what their child is going through and ultimately to build an alliance where it's not child plus game versus parent. It's parent and child on the same team kind of working right. to think about, OK, what do you what do you want from life? What does the video game give you? And is there some way that we can give you what the video game gives you, like a sense of community? Can we build that for you in the real world? And that's really what our mission is, is to create healthy gamers. It's not abstinence. It's to create someone who can enjoy playing video games, but is also like living a fulfilling and positive life. I would add to that. So fundamentally, like it's just it's not about quitting the game, it's about supporting the gamer. Right. Which is yet another difference from other addictions, right? Again, sex addiction, drug addiction, it's cut it off. It's cold turkey. But you guys are saying, no, what, you, what you're proposing or advocating is just balance and moderation. And as part of a holistic sort of healthy 360. Yeah. And, and you know, Mike, I was just I, I just can't let this go. But like I've worked with people with sex addiction. Sure, cut it off for a while. But, you know, the goal, I would say, is similar to sex addiction or like shopping addiction, which is, you know, we don't tell someone who's addicted to shopping to never purchase something again. And right. at least when I work with people who have sex addictions, it's not to never have sex again. It's to learn how to like have sex be a healthy part of your life. Got it. All right. Well, hey, again, thank you. I really appreciate you both taking the time today. And again, if you're out there and you're listening and you think this might be touching your life a little bit, it's healthygamer.gg. And yeah, I again, I this was a great conversation for me and I learned a lot. So I wasn't as wrong as I really thought I was. So maybe there's hope for me. But thank you both. Thank you, Crudy. Thank you, Doctor. Thank I appreciate you. it. Yeah, Mike. I, I mean, I think I think your your theories are fantastic, dude. You hit the nail on the head. Oh, don't don't let anyone hear that. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. Catch us on Spotify and iTunes and at tiltatwindmills.com.